0: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jim Breckbuehler. I'm the discipleship minister here. So this is the last week of our Asleep in the Light series. And this morning's sermon is entitled Wake Up About Spiritual Passivity. And I want to talk real quickly about the men of Issachar who were called out special. The Bible doesn't waste any words. And these guys are mentioned specifically. Back in the, the, in the days of Israel, Saul had died in battle. And now the different, the 12 tribes of Israel are sending men to David who is out at Hebron. They're pledging their support and giving the kingdom over to David as their king. And so it says that Judah sent uh, 6,800 men armed for battle, carrying shield and spear. From Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. From Ephraim, brave warriors, famous in their own clans. 20,800 from the half tribe of Manasseh, designated by name to come and make David king, 18,000 from Zebulon, experienced soldiers prepared for battle with every type of weapon, 50,000 men from Naphtali, a thousand officers with 37,000 men carrying shields and spears, and then from east of the Jordan, from Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh armed with every type of weapon, 120,000 soldiers. But right in the middle in verse 32 is a very interesting little line, and it says, From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. The men of Issachar were called out specifically because they had a unique gift. And that was that they understood their times. They understood the culture in which they were living, and they knew the direction that Israel needed to go. And if there is ever a time in our culture today that we need to be the men and women of Issachar, it's today. We need young men and young women of Issachar today. We need students to be thinking like the men of Issachar, to understand our times, to understand our culture, and know which directions for this church to go, for for our families to go, and for ourselves, the direction we each need to move to honor God. The reason for that is we are living in a rapidly changing post-Christian culture. Much of this is simply because of the highest recorded biblical illiteracy in our country that's been recorded. There's an inability to use Scripture to defend and advance our faith. People accept lies about the Bible. They're not true, but they can't defend it. But the Bible has not changed. In addition, our culture has embraced relativism, a.k.a. there's no absolute truth. What's good for you is good. What's good for you is good. As long as it doesn't affect me, we're all good. And then what has permeated our society is the fact that all religions lead to God. And now we find ourselves in a mess in North America. And I know that that is oversimplifying it, but it gives you some of the baseline. A recent survey of 35,000 Americans by the Pew Research Center found that the rise of the nuns, as in N-O-N-E-S, the rise of the nuns has grown to encompass 23% of America's adults. This was a few years back. It's definitely higher than that now. This needs means nearly one out of every four adults in the United States, when asked about their religious identity, would say nothing. They are the religiously unaffiliated. When asked about their religion on various services, they do not ask, they do not answer Baptists or Catholics or any other defined faith, they simply say, I am nothing. Now, that may not sound a lot to you, but it's the rapid growth that this group has had. So let's put it in perspective. In the 1930s and the 1940s, we've always had the nuns. In the 1930s, 1940s, it was at 5%. And over the next 60 years, it would only grow 3% to eight percent. But from 1990 to 2018, 18 years, it nearly doubled to 15 percent. And from 2009 to 2012, in just four years, it would go up four percent to 19 percent. And then this group would go in from just two years, from 2013 to 2014, this group would go up four percent again to one in every four Americans. It went up only three percentage points over a 60-year span of time, and it went up four percentage points in just 2013-2014. The nuns are no longer the second largest group as far as religious identity in in our country. The Catholics used to have that place, but now they are the number one religious identity and they are still by far the fastest growing. But the significance is not simply that the nuns are growing. The number of professing Christians is also shrinking. In 2008, 80% of our American fellow people here described themselves as Christians. In just seven years that number had dropped 9% to 71% confessing Christians by 2014. Pew Research also tells us about ex-Christians. Further, many who were once in the church are now leaving it. About 19% of Americans would call themselves former Christians. And this is a staggering statistic. In 1994, 62% of Americans attended a church frequently, but by 2013, just 19 years later, barely half of Americans attended more than seldom to none. Kathy Lynn Grossman is a researcher, and she said there's a difference in our culture now. It's not that people are necessarily hostile to God or hostile to the church as much as they don't even think about it. God's not on their radar. They don't think about it. And this is a break from the traditional culture that we have had in our North American mindset. And James Emery Wright, White wrote a great book called Meet Generation Z, Understanding and Reaching the Post-Christian World, and in it he talks about the squishy center. But on one side, he has 25% of the North American population as secularists. And basically that's people who say, I don't want religion or the church anywhere in my life. I am totally secular, no religion. And then on the other end of the scale are the 25% believers. And these are hardcore Christians who believe that Jesus is not only their savior, but he's their leader. He meets them at their deepest needs and their li- and. Jesus and their lives intersect on a regular basis. From year to year, they grow to be more like Jesus. And then in the middle is what he calls the squishy center. The squishy center is basically people that they're not sold out to being secularists and they're not sold out to being Christians. They may say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's going to be a Christian with a little c. And in the past the forces within the culture tended to move the center towards the believer's side of things. Those hovering in the squishy center, if asked, would have said they were a Christian. That was the cultural thing to say, and they would probably have gone to church at least on special days, such as Easter and Christmas. There was cultural pressure on them if they didn't. But our culture has changed. It's not moving people that way anymore. It's not shaping people that way anymore. Now, virtually everything in the culture is moving the squishy center to the secular side. And he goes on to write, today, if asked about their religion, people in the center say they're nothing because that's the cultural thing to do. And they don't go to church because that's also the cultural thing not to do. And this is what white means by the squishy center and the way culture has dictated a new way for it to go. So there is absolutely no question that we have moved to a post-Christian culture that is rapidly changing fast. That we got to ask the question, should we be surprised? And the answer is no. There's pretty much uniform agreement across scholars that the last letter that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy, and in it he discusses his pending death. He knows that he will be killed for his faith, and when someone is dying, they don't waste time. They say exactly what they want people to know. And so Paul is writing to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy, as well as those that would look over his shoulder like us for centuries to come. Uh, In 2 Timothy 3, this is what it says, But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Listen if this describes our country. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Without love. Unforgiving. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. Not lovers of good. Treacherous. Rash. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Wright goes on to say in his Generation Z, Meet Generation Z book, something that we as Christians all need to pay attention to. Unfortunately, the realities of a post-Christian context for the West have yet to be fully grasped by the Western church, much less responded to. Yet the rise of the nuns and the coming force of Generation Z will inevitably challenge every church to rethink its strategy in light of a cultural landscape that has shifted seismically. If the heart of the Christian mission is to evangelize and transform culture through the centrality of the church, then understanding that culture is paramount. It goes back to us as Christians that we must understand the culture that we live in. We have to understand our times and know what direction we want to take this church and our families and what direction we want to go in individually. Now, is the news all bad? Absolutely not. Is the Christian sky falling? No. Christianity is on the rise worldwide, particularly in the global southern hemisphere. Christianity remains the largest faith and the most distant projections to 2015 see it maintaining that lead. Gen Zs born 1999 to 2015, while not necessarily embracing the church or Jesus, are seeking out the spiritual world. They're into ghosts, they're into spiritualism, and they are struggling with emptiness And with loneliness, we have the answer to every one of their concerns in Jesus, the fulfiller and the healer. Even in science, things are beginning to happen. Scientists are becoming open to the fact that there's a missing link. Go figure. And we have the answer to that too. But here's the truth for all of us. We live in the Northern Hemisphere here in the United States, and that's the culture in which we live and operate in. So what's this mean going forward? Well, first of all, we need to put our American anxiety against a worldwide context. If this makes you anxious, our brothers and sisters around the world who meet on Sunday morning and throughout the week in secret churches in fear of imprisonment, Beatings or death might look at us, yawn, and then tell us to stop whining and get to work. If you're thinking, should I have kids? If Cheryl and I were young again, which would really be cool, we would have kids in a heartbeat. It's just that we would be more intentional with a sense of urgency in giving our kids a saving faith. I think another thing that's going to happen is that there will be less room for nominal Christians. The squishy middle is going to get smaller. People will have to decide whether they're either going to be in or out of Christianity. And even though the church may grow smaller, it will grow stronger. Historically, when the church has been persecuted, it has persevered and grown stronger. Next, the church will never change its message, but methods may change. We'll be less about programs and more about freeing people up to have the time for authentic relationships to the share the good news about Jesus. Instead of organizing volunteers to ask people that are unchurched to come here for events, we as a church body need to mobilize to go out and live out our vision statements in our own neighborhoods. Our vision statement says we are a church that reaches intentionally into the local and global communities, developing authentic relationships. We are a church that loves people wherever they are, especially in their brokenness and their messiness, but loves them too much to let them stay there. And in the fourth leg of our vision statement, it can be summarized that, It is the personal responsibility of every Christian to go and make disciples through relational ministry. So what does that look like in 2019? White has a great graph and then talks about this in his book. And so basically what it looks like is this. On one side you have a zero where someone has zero knowledge of God or faith or anything, void of everything. And on the far right at the 10 is where they have come to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. And when we go back to the 1960s, we were talking to people at that time that had an acceptance of the deity of Jesus. They had a belief that truth exists, that the Bible was trustworthy. They had a positive image of the church and its leaders. They generally had a church background. They had a foundational knowledge of the essential truths of the Christian faith, and a built-in sense of guilt or conviction kicked in when they violated the basic principles and beliefs of the Judeo-Christian value system. And so at that time, it was fertile ground, and and churches would have events. They would have a bus ministry, or they would have door-to-door evangelism, or they would have tent revivals. They would have Sunday school and they would invite people to these events and they needed to bump them from an 8 to a 10. But that's not our fertile culture now. Now we're talking to people that may be more along the lines of about a 3. They don't know who Jesus is. They've never heard Bible stories. They've heard the Bible has errors and they can't cite any of them. But people have generated these lies and that's what goes. They have a negative view of the church and its leaders, and they're not familiar with Judeo-Christian principles and belief. And so now sharing our faith is more of a process. For many, we are going to have to go back to Genesis 1.1. This is how God created the heavens and the earth. This is how we got the Bible. This is how you read your Bible. This is why we have the cross. This is who Jesus is. And it's no longer an event. It will be a process and oftentimes a long process where we strike up an authentic friendship with someone and over time, we teach them the things of God. This should serve as an encouragement to you if you're thinking, man, I I, want to share my faith and I'm coming up dry. We are on soil that's very hard. And it might be the opportunity to say, I'm going to step back and spend more individual with times with people to just help develop their faith and I'm going to have to give them more than just the gospel and move on. Now this the times we're living in are not just our times they were in the biblical days in the acts of the apostles in the book of acts as they were going around and setting up the church. We see in Acts 2 Peter is preaching the first sermon of the church on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people come to Jesus and are baptized. That's good for any preacher. That's a good day. But Peter's preaching to Jews and he was using their scriptures and their prophecies and he basically said, hey, the Messiah was coming. You guys should have saw him and you didn't and you killed him. And they're like, we have a problem. What must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was talking to fertile ground. Fast forward to Acts 17. Paul is in the city of Athens. It is a city full of idols. They even have an altar to the unknown God. And it said while he was in the, the synagogue, he also was in the marketplace. And he would reason with people, and he would tell them about Jesus, but he reasoned with them. And the Greeks invited him to something called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and it was a place where they would gather for just thinking and talking. In fact, it says the Athenians and the foreigners just gathered there all day, did nothing else but talk about what they thought, which sometimes I think mirrors our society. But Paul went all the way back to Genesis 1 and he shared with them the things of God and he reasoned with them. And when he got to the point where Jesus died and rose again, it says people sneered at him. They thought he was crazy. The message there is that the apostle Paul did not have a 100% success rate. It does say that people came to the Lord, but many sneered at him did not we are in an acts 17 culture if not worse so what else and that's the main point right now is that there is no room now for passivity in discipling the next generation and we must awaken to the spiritual truth From teachers to VBS workers to youth leaders, we need to be very intentional with a sense of urgency. We want that phrase to permeate the culture of this church, that we will disciple the next generation that we love so dearly with great intentionality, with a sense of urgency. And nowhere is this more apparent than in parenting the next generation. There will be no room for passive parenting, only intentional parenting with a sense of urgency. Parenting needs to return to a Deuteronomy 6 model that it should have never left to begin with. In Deuteronomy 6, 4-8, through 8, we pick up there, Moses has given the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. Moses is saying there is to be an intensity about your faith. Then he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That latter verse right there basically says your home should reflect your faith in what your kids see in your home or anybody walking into it, kids from other families. But where it says, talk about them when you sit at home. This, parents, is where we sit around the dinner table and devices, cell phones, they're in another room, they're turned off. And we sit there at dinner and we pray over our meal and then we just talk. And we encourage spiritual conversations where maybe hard questions will come up. It says when you walk along the road, this is where we don't walk that much anymore, but this is where we're in the minivan going to practice and we have the spiritual conversations. Or maybe we prompt our kids on how to handle a tough situation that they're going to walk into or Maybe we point to the clouds and say, look at the light show that God is putting on right now. How awesome is that? And then it says when you lie down and when you get up. In the morning, most homes are chaotic and maybe all you can do is a short devotion and pray with your kids as they go out the door. But nighttime when they're going to bed is just absolutely a precious and critical time. We've got three boys, they're all out of the home, they're all out, one's in college, the other two are going. We always asked three questions when they got home from school at either three or after practice at six, and we got the same answers for a collective 36 years. Um, How was school today? Fine. Did you learn anything? No. Did anything happen? No. I mean, that is just every day. But at night, we would go into their rooms, this went all the way through high school, And we would do a devotion with them, and it was never a hurried time. It was often when the lights were out that all of a sudden their hearts would open up, and they say, man, this happened today. I'm so mad, or I'm sad, or what do I do about this? And it gave us an opportunity to go, well, here's what we could do from a faith standpoint. And then we would pray about that. And parents, examine what you do late at night. If your thing is to kiss your kids and run out the door so you can get a, watch your favorite show or your, get on your device and read stuff that's basically irrelevant, think about that. Use that biblical appointed time to shepherd the next generation intentionally. In our class, The Essentials of Christian Parenting, we emphasized that parents need to do these things and we'll teach this class in the future. And I want to say up front, you can do all these things, but our kids, just like us, are free will beings, and they can make choices that will go in the opposite direction. All we can do is do the best we possibly can, but we need to teach our children the Bible, which naturally requires us to have a learner mentality as adults. Our kids are going to be asking some very tough questions coming out of our culture, and we can't be going, I don't know, I don't know. We have to figure out these questions, and if you're being asked questions by your kids and you don't know the answer, call us. I love to answer questions or talk about it. Now, if you call and ask me a spiritual question, I might pass out because usually it's, hey, can I have the keys to go somewhere, (laughs) you know, or do you know where the water jugs are at or whatever? I love spiritual questions. We love to help you in that area, but we need to be on top of things. Again, we have to have an intentionality with a sense of urgency as all of us, teachers, VBS workers, youth group readers, as we disciple the next generation. Just a side note, by the time kids are 14, it's thought that they lay down the vast majority of their spiritual underpinnings. So if you have a kid that's 12 and you're thinking, oh, I've got time. You're two years away from the vast majority of their spiritual underpinnings being in place. And then you kind of move into a coaching role. Don't waste time. We need to model Jesus to our children. They need to see our faith in action. As parents, they need to see us live out forgiveness and to get rid of bitterness and to how to handle conflict in a Christian manner and how to have compassion and kindness towards other people. And I want to say this toward, especially to dads. I meet with guys all the time, men and women, but mainly I talk a lot with this with dads. And as we talk about faith issues, I'll ask them, hey, what was your dad like? And I don't know why this is, but oftentimes how our earthly dads are is how we will grow up thinking God is. If our dad is a distant, unattentive dad, then God will be a distant, unattentive God. If our earthly dad was an angry God, then God will be an angry God. If our earthly father was vindictive, then God will be a vengeful God. But if our earthly father was compassionate and full of mercy and showed unconditional love, then that will be pretty much the overriding view of God and they won't have to have a major shift as an adult in how they see God so it's a it's a message to dads to watch your children are watching you live out God in front of them next is to our environment our homes are our classroom it's the crucible where we mix up our kids faith and we need to create a safe peaceful learning environment and we need to cultivate good spiritual discussions in the home so our kids don't ask Google we got to have great relationships with our kids. We need to tell them all the time how much we love them, because if we don't, somebody else will. Our oldest son is 33, and the others 32, or uh, 30, and we have a 19-year-old. Not a day goes by that we don't, when we talk to him, that we tell him that we love him. You have to have good relationships in order for them to feel like they can open up to you to have those tough conversations. And lastly, we need to pray. We need to constantly bathe our kids and our family relationships in prayer. We need to bathe the kids in our Sunday school classes, in our life groups, in our youth groups, in prayer. And again, we can do all these things, but we're free will beings and our kids can choose to go the other, other direction. But we still need to do the right thing and not be passive in our parenting or in passive in shepherding the kids in this church in whatever role we might sit. So we conclude this Asleep in the Light series today. We opened with what is heaven and what is hell, and we talked about the fact that hell is a a place of darkness, of fire, uh, the smell of sulfur, that there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and worse as much as anything, there's a separation. God is not there. And then we talked about heaven being the place of no mores. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. There won't be any lights there because Jesus and our Heavenly Father will be there. They will be the natural light, and we will be totally safe. And Steve asked at the end of the first sermon these two questions. Do you believe it, and do you care? Then we were called to wake up about, priorities, and called to wake up about obedience. And we end today with waking up about passivity. There is no room for it. We must disciple the next generation with intentionality, with a sense of urgency. And we must keep in mind that every single one of us, all of our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, we will all die someday. And will we be the ones who share the good news with those around us? Will we teach our young the things of God? Will we teach our kids how to pray? Because when it's all said and done, technology and fame will not matter. Titles and material possessions will mean absolutely Nothing. It will all be about the soul and whether someone taught them about Jesus. Do we mourn for those who don't know the good news of Jesus? Do we truly care about people's souls? We're going to close with this clip. This shows so clearly what goes through a person's mind at that last minute. In spite of her title, in spite of her success as an astronaut, for Dr. Ryan Steele, it all boils down to one thing, her soul and what she was taught. May we be ever mindful of this. The words at the end there are haunting. Nobody taught me how to pray. And as a church, may we not be guilty of that. Again, let's just, we have to develop a mindset that we are not passive, but we are intentional about teaching the next generation and uh, those all around us. Let's make sure we teach them about Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church body, and we just pray that there's a revival amongst us. that we will be ever mindful that when it all boils down to the very end, we will all meet you someday. And it's going to be whether we're scared before we go or whether we're looking forward to it with great anticipation. And our prayer is that as many people as possible would go with the anticipation of meeting you. And I just pray that as for Discover Christian Church that we will be a church that is just passionate about reaching people, that we look past the things that they own or the things that they've done, and we look inside at their soul. That we set aside our own desires to go achieve things and get stuff and build stuff up and Instead, put you as a priority and about sharing. Jesus, help free us up. Give us the time from all the things that can drain us so that we can have those authentic friendships where we can sit and tell people about you and about your saving relationship through Jesus, your son. Forgive us when we have failed, but as we walk out of these doors this morning, I would just pray that as a church family, We will be on fire as much as we ever have been to share your Son. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon series by Discover Christian Church. Find more at discovercc.org.